Andy was a dyed-in-the-wool Southern Baptist. He had been Baptist his whole life because his parents had been Baptist his whole life. His grandparents and even his great-grandparents were Baptist. And this was a heritage that Andy was very proud of. And not only was that his heritage, he also served on many boards and committees throughout the, the course of his life in his church. He gave his tithe faithfully. There was another thing about Andy that he was very proud of. It was that he had served the same employer for nearly 50 years. He was from a small Missouri town, and he worked in an automotive plant, and he worked there from the time he graduated high school. But finally, the day had come to retire. Understandably, Andy was very excited, yeah? And so on his last day, his coworkers threw him a retirement lunch, which sounds nice until we realized that the reason that they were putting on a party was because they were excited they didn't have to see him the next day. You see, Andy kind of had a reputation at work. He wasn't a drunk. He didn't show up to work hungover or anything like that. It's just that he was mean. He was selfish. He had a short temper. But his coworkers were excited because soon that would be behind them. And so they thought, let's have a lunch party. And before the lunch party wrapped up, someone said, Andy, why don't you share a few words? And so Andy was proud to do so. And, and he stood before his coworkers of 50 years. Some of them, of course, had not been there that long, but many of them had worked there with him since day one. And, and he stood up there and he said, Every week of my life for the last 50 years has been essentially the same. Every Monday through Friday, I come here and I put up with you people. Every Saturday, I have to put up with my wife nagging me and telling me what to do around the house. And every Sunday, well, I just love Sundays. On Sunday, I get up and I put on my Sunday best and I go to church and I worship the Lord Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. At that point, Andy's coworkers stopped listening because they were absolutely shocked to find out that he considered himself not only a religious man, but a devout Christian. And it's easy for us to hear a story like this and shake our heads in disapproval at Andy. We do it to the disciples through the Gospels all the time. But each one of us has to examine our lives on a daily basis to see if the way that we are walking in the world is consistent with what we profess to believe. And so the text that we're going to look at today is from 1 John, the end of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3. And what, the, what we're drawing from John's letter here is that we must walk like Jesus. If we are truly sons and daughters of God, we will walk like Jesus. Simply put, for those of us who have truly been born again, we should bear a striking resemblance to Jesus. Amen. So my aim today is to help us to see Jesus more clearly as he's revealed himself to us in his word so that we can give him the glory he deserves. Let's read this together. 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 28. It says this, Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us 
that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So as I said, my aim today is to help us see Jesus more clearly as he's revealed himself so that we can model our lives and our walk after his. And so to do this, I'd like to ask us three questions this morning. The first question, am I walking like Jesus? The second question is, am I thankful for being adopted into this family? And the third question we'll consider is, Am I nourishing my new nature in Christ? So first, we're going to ask that question, am I walking like Jesus? Am I bearing this family resemblance to my Savior? So listen to those words of 1 John 2, 28 and 29. He says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have, what, confidence and not shrink away from him at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So to set the, the background for us so that we can understand what we're reading here, this is the Apostle John. He's an older saint at this time. He's writing probably from uh, Turkey, and he oversees several churches in that region. And so he's writing to a church under his leadership. He's not the the local boots-on-the-ground pastor, but he is one of their elders. And so he's writing to one of these churches that is under attack theologically. There are forces from outside the church and within the church that are trying to sell these believers a lie about who Jesus is. Well, one of the primary forces at play here was a movement called Gnosticism. Gnosticism just comes from a word that means secret knowledge. And so they would go around and say, oh, that's cute. You have your Old Testament. You have the testimony of the apostles. But I have a direct line of revelation from God. And he told me something about himself that's not in your measly little Bible. And you can see how alluring this movement would be because wouldn't it feel special to know that God spoke to you in a way that he doesn't speak to others? That would make you feel pretty cool, wouldn't it? And so it was an easy sell. But we can also know that there is a way to verify that a message someone claims is from God is actually from God. And that is by his self-authenticating word. If even an angel comes to you and proclaims a different gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Let him be cut off from God if someone brings a message other than the one that is revealed to us in Scripture. That's why we are fiercely devoted to the doctrine of Scripture alone. Scripture is our authority. I'm not your authority. The elders are not your authority. No councils, no pope is your authority. The Scriptures are our sole authority because it is God's word written down for us. Well, one of the things that Gnosticism wanted to hawk, one of the the beliefs that they taught was something called dualism. 
And dualism would say that the physical and the spiritual are completely separated natures. They're not related to one another. And so as a result of that, these Gnostic Christians, as they called themselves anyhow, didn't believe that Jesus was resurrected physically. That's a problem. Because all of the disciples, except for John, were martyred for their faith. Because they believed in the literal physical resurrection of Jesus. And John would have been too if he weren't so tough. They tried to boil him in oil. The guy just wouldn't die. Lord, please don't let that be my fate. But he knows best, doesn't he? But we also see uh, earlier in chapter 2, in verses 18 through 27, the lie that John is writing to address. Specifically, I want us to look at chapter 2, verse 22, where John says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So Jesus says, Thomas, put your hand in my side. Feel the wounds in my hands. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see that I have. That's Jesus speaking. And the Gnostics came along and said, oh, he wasn't resurrected physically. It was just a spiritual resurrection. What I want for us to see at this point is that what we profess with our mouth, what we actually believe in our mind and in our hearts, has an enormous impact on our day-to-day lives. I've heard it said like this, that right believing leads to right living. Well, the opposite is true as well, isn't it? If right believing leads to right living, wrong believing also leads to wrong living. So if we say that we believe certain things about Jesus, it should inform the way in which we live. If we believe something about Jesus that is not consistent with Scripture, we believe in a false Jesus. And there's only one Jesus who can save. And it's not the false ones that we come up with in our minds. On the other hand, if we truly believe in Jesus as he has revealed himself in Scripture, John tells us in this text that it will have a sanctifying effect on our lives. He says in chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I don't know about you, but if I thought I was getting special direct revelation from God, outside of Scripture, that would puff me up with pride. I would walk around here and look down upon my brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, obviously God loves me more because he's not telling you what he's telling me about him. You see this effect that this has, and this is most likely what was happening there around modern-day Turkey, Ephesus. The Gnostics were arrogant, and they were living however they wanted. And think about this. It makes sense. If we believe that the physical and the spiritual are completely detached, that when someone commits a sin in their sin nature, it has no effect on us spiritually. So we can just do whatever we want. Does that sound like the consistent testimony of Scripture? No. So their dualism led to sinful lives. Their belief directly resulted in how they lived. 
And so John responds to this kind of false teaching and wrong living when he says in 2.29, if you know that Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, the proof of being born of Christ is walking and acting like him. I'm the youngest of three brothers. I don't know if you guys know this about me, that I have two older brothers and an older sister. And I'm the youngest, so I was, of course, spoiled as a child. And uh, my oldest brother is about 12 years. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus. But you and I are connected there, brother. We are, right? Our moms love us more than the other siblings. I'm just kidding. (laughs) My oldest brother, who my mom also adores, is about 12 years older than me. But I also have another brother who's just about a year older than me. And so growing up, Jared is the, the brother that's a year older. John is 12 years older. Jared and I have always been very similar. Actually, some of you in the room do know him. He was a firefighter here in town several years ago. And uh, he and I are alike in a lot of ways. He might be a little rougher around the edges than I am, but we sounded alike, we looked alike, oftentimes we dressed alike, and it wasn't uncommon when we were young, when we were about the same height, for people to say, oh, are they twins? We were that similar. But my oldest brother, John, who's over a decade older than both of us, didn't look a lot like us. Jared and I are kind of big, strong-looking guys, strong-looking, I should emphasize, My oldest brother, John, is tall and and skinny. He's just built differently than we are. And so we never thought growing up that we looked an awful lot like John. But now that we've matured, not only are mine and Jared's similarities more pronounced, we've started to see, too, how much we look like our oldest brother, John. See, there's a family trait. It's not hard to believe that John's my brother. If you saw him, you would see that I have the same face as my brother, John. It's this kind of family trait that the Apostle John, not my brother, the Apostle, is painting in 1 John 2.29 when he says, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John is essentially asking, are you walking like Jesus? Now, we have to be clear on this because this, the, the phrase of this verse could be a bit confusing to us. We go, Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Does that mean that our works lead to our salvation, our justification, our being made right with the Father? And no, we have to be clear on this. We're not saved by our works. But when we are truly saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, good works, a life of holiness, necessarily follow. Walking like Jesus is the evidence that we are truly children of God. If I were to fly over to England and waltz myself up to Buckingham Palace and claim to be a member of the royal family, I better have proof because I'm not walking through those gates if I'm not truly a member of the royal family, right? Don't we do this all the time, being members of the most royal family? We claim to be Christians, and yet we don't walk like Jesus. We don't have the same face as the Savior, So how do we prove that we're really children of God? By the way we live. Not just by what we say. Consistent testimony of Scripture is that we will know a tree by its fruit. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, that we would know a person is a false prophet or a wolf in sheep's clothing by what? The fruit they bear. 
Conversely, Paul lists for us in Galatians 5, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes I want to replace the word fruit so that we understand this better. The result of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, how can you tell if someone has the Holy Spirit as the root of their life or the fruit that they bear? Likewise, James chapter 2, verse 24, and here's another tricky verse for us. James tells us in 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, it's understandably misinterpreted because it's often taken like this. Obviously, works make you right with God, but that's not the consistent testimony of Scripture. So we have to examine it closer and say, what is James saying here? And this is one of the reasons why the reformer, Martin Luther, called the the epistle of James a right, strawy epistle. I just want to throw a match to it, go up in flames. He didn't think there was much substance to it because even someone, the likes of Martin Luther, misunderstood a verse like this because he was such a staunch defender, and rightly so, of salvation by faith alone. So we read a verse like that and we go, well, does that mean that we're, we're justified by what we do? No. If you look at James's argument as it's laid out in his letter, it becomes clear that what he's saying is this. The works that we do are how people can see that we've been justified. We see by a person's works that they have been forgiven. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, I want to jump to, back to our, our main text here, but to chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, where John continues this thought about walking like Jesus when he says, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The expectation is that those who have been adopted into Christ's family, who have God as their father, will walk and live in a very distinctive way. Has anyone here ever engaged with an unbeliever who has challenged you on your faith by pointing to some of the laws in the Old Testament? They say, well, the Old Testament says that you can't eat shrimp or bacon. It says you can't wear fabric of, uh, or, or a garment of mixed fabric. And yet, I'm pretty sure that's a, a poly-cotton blend that you're wearing, brother. So maybe one that, that we're a little bit more familiar with is the, the prohibition against eating pork, Right? And I've heard the argument before, maybe some of you even here would say, well, the reason that God told the Israelites not to eat pork was because they didn't have preservatives, they didn't have refrigeration, and he knew that there was this particular bacteria that they would get sick if they ate it. Is that the only reason? No. There's a greater purpose in God's laws, as foreign as they seem to us sometimes. They served to make a distinction between God's people and those who were willfully at war with him. So when John says the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him, we need to pause and ask ourselves, does the world know me? John's saying that for the true believer, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Jesus. The world can't understand the the reason we live the way that we do. Does the world know me? Is the way that I'm living and walking perfectly fine with those who are willfully at war against God? If so we might need to do a reevaluation here. So let's personally take an inventory. Am I walking like Jesus? Is my 
life consistent with my profession of faith? Well, one of the the most evident outworkings of a person who has truly been changed is thankfulness. We should be the most thankful, joyful people in all the world. Amen? These two concepts of holiness, walking consistently with our profession, and joyfulness are inextricably linked. They cannot be separated. And that brings us to this second question. Am I living a joyfully thankful life? Look again with me at 1 John 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That we would be called children of God, and such we are. We're the children of God. I love the way the NIV translates this verse because it says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That helps give us a sense of the magnitude of his love. God gives his love generously, joyfully. And if he gets joy in giving that love, we should, of all people, have an incredible, uncontainable amount of joy in receiving that love. I often say that the good news is only understood to be good when we understand what the bad news is. If you walk up to someone who's never heard the gospel before and you say, Good news, Jesus died to save you. They go, save me from what? It doesn't make sense without a context. The bad news is that we need saving. The bad news is that as sons and daughters of Adam, we're born with a sinful nature, a nature that hates God's law, that rebels against God. But the good news is that God gives his forgiveness joyfully, freely. He calls us children. We were once children of wrath, and now we're children of God. Amen? I've never met someone who lived a truly holy life who wasn't absolutely overflowing with joyful thanksgiving. Now, don't confuse joy with happiness. Some of the most joyful people I know have endured the worst suffering and affliction. And we, probably most of us, know plenty of people who are perfectly happy to remain in their sin. That's not going to last forever, is it? But what we're talking about here is what Peter calls joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy that doesn't make sense to the world. So what does joyful thanks look like in the life of the believer? Just this past week, I went to the store and I took Olive with me. And I bought her a toy, as dads do. And I love giving gifts to my children. Those of you who are parents, and especially grandparents, you know, it's just fun to give gifts, isn't it? And we're trying to walk that balance of not spoiling them. But we love to give good gifts to our children. And so as I was buckling her in her car seat, leaving the store, I I held the doll that I'd given her so I could buckle her in, and I handed it back to her. And I I said, you know, Olive, you're a gift from God. And she went, like my new doll? And I said, yeah, like your new doll. You know how you loved getting that gift? I loved getting you when God gave you to our family. That was a joy. That was a blessing to us. And I said, do you know how how we respond when someone gives us a gift. 
And I could see the wheels turning in her mind, and she said, well, we say thank you. And I said, yeah, we do. We say thank you, but we also show thankfulness. And I said, do you know how I show thankfulness for you? By cherishing you, by caring for you. And I said, and that's the way we, we respond when others give us gifts, is we cherish those gifts, we care for them. Think about the gifts that God has given you. Maybe you've been given the resources to be a generous financial giver. The way that you can display joyful thanks in that is by being faithful in giving. Maybe you have the gift of mercy, and joyful thanksgiving for you will look like showing mercy to those in need. Maybe you have a gift to teach, and you show joyful thanksgiving by using that gift. What if your gift is just hospitality? We might downplay that. No, no, no. We need those donuts, brothers and sisters. So if your gift is the gift of hospitality, sign up to be part of the donut ministry. It's not trivial. It's a way to show joyful thanksgiving for the gift that God has given you. Whatever your gift is, using that gift, investing in that gift rather than burying it is a display of joyful thanksgiving. Our individual gifts like giving and teaching, hospitality and mercy and service and so on, these are all microcosms of the greatest gift. The greatest gift that John is referring to in our text here is the gift of adoption. So if you're given a gift, each of us, as the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 14, when we use those gifts to build one another up, how much more are we to walk in the gift of adoption? We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. So when we sing, as we just did a few moments ago, Amazing Grace, it should take on a new significance for us. It's such a familiar song that I think we can switch our brains off. But we should sing Amazing Grace with such gusto, even a slow rendition of it, that someone from the world would walk in and go, what in the world are they on? We're on the grace of God, amen? So if you've been given the gift of teaching, teach. If you've been given the gift of mercy, show mercy. If you've been given the gift of hospitality, be hospitable. And if we've been given the gift of adoption, live as children of God. So at this point, there are two ways that I think we need to respond so far. Again, as we did earlier, we're going to take a personal inventory and ask ourselves if we are, in fact, walking like Jesus. And secondly, we need to consider the gifts that God has given us and see them as a calling. We do not believe in inactive members of the body. I'm not just talking about the body of Grace Family Fellowship. I'm talking about the body of Christ. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation, you're a member of his body, and every one of us has a gift. And that gift is part of our calling. Are you using that gift or are you burying it? I would encourage you today, don't bury that gift. Invest in it, use it, cherish it, care for it to show joyful thanksgiving for having been given that gift. So when we're truly walking in holiness like Jesus and when we're living a life of joyful thanksgiving, it has a nourishing effect on our spiritual life. It, it has a kind of a compound interest. The more we do it, the more we desire to do it. Which brings us to our third question. Am I nourishing my new nature in Christ? 
Listen again to what John says in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. These verses remind us that until the last day, we will still wrestle with our old sin nature. We don't only look to the future and just try to buckle our seatbelts and hold on for the ride, but we look to the future for the hope that it provides us. You see, it wouldn't make sense for us to say we are anticipating eternity, that we look forward to heaven, and we should. We should look forward to all things being reconciled, to everything wrong being made right. We should look forward to that, but it wouldn't make sense for us to say we're looking forward to that and still sit back and idly let sin rule our lives, would it? Heaven is not just disembodied spirits floating around on clouds, playing harps, and wearing togas. Maybe that sounds enticing to you. Does not sound enticing to me. Not the harps. I'm not digging on harps. I hope there's harps in heaven. I just don't think we're all going to be floating around like chubby babies playing harps and wearing togas. What heaven is is this. As Paul tells us in Colossians 1.20, Christ will have reconciled all things to himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.12 that we will know God fully even as we are fully known. If heaven is our goal, why would we want to continue on wallowing in our sin, the sin that Christ died to redeem us from? Am I nourishing my new nature? You see, every one of us, as descendants of Adam and Eve, were born with a sinful nature. That's the radical nature of the corruption that happened at the fall. None of us are getting out of this thing without a sin nature. Someday we'll be set free from that, but each one of us as human beings are born with a sin nature with one exception, Jesus. Christ alone was born sinless. For the rest of us, we're born with a nature that has a proclivity towards sin. You see, we don't become sinners the first time we commit a sin. David recognized this in Psalm 51 after he had an affair with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered on the battlefield. He recognized this when he said, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. He wasn't just calling his mama a sinner. He was saying, from the moment I was conceived, I was sinful. I needed a savior. But as new creations in Christ, we've now been given a new nature. So now we have two natures. And it'd be nice if we didn't have to battle the old nature, but we do. The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's not a license to go on sinning. That would be Gnostic dualism that John wrote to address. 
But John tells us this with great encouragement. Now we are children of God. We don't have to wait until eternity to be adopted. And this is good and glorious news. And that's why John begins there before he goes on to say, it hasn't yet appeared what we will be. He goes, if you think it's good now, it's going to get a whole lot better when your sin nature is fully and finally done away with. Verse 3 tells us everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. So everyone who purifies himself, let's consider that for a moment. Does this mean that we get to take some of the credit for becoming more and more holy over time? No, not even a bit. Just as in our justification, our being made right with God, that is a work of God He alone gets the glory for it. We don't get to share in any of the credit for being made right with God, but he doesn't do it apart from our surrender. So God gets the glory for our surrender. Likewise, in our sanctification, our being made more and more holy over time, that is completely a work of the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't do it apart from our obedience. God alone gets the glory. Because according to our nature, in Adam, we would never surrender and we would never obey. It's not in our nature. We have to be given a new nature, as Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 36. He says he's going to replace the stony heart with a heart of flesh. And he's going to dwell within us so that we will walk in his statutes and observe his ordinances rather than our own. Now, it's one thing to ask whether or not we're feeding and nourishing our new nature. It's another thing altogether to ask, how do we do that? Well, for starters, you have to stop feeding your old nature. There's only enough food for one. Which nature are you feeding? What are you spending your time doing? What are we investing the God-given time that we have into? You see, we often face a multitude of temptation to sin. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses. If Jesus faced temptation, how much more will we face temptation? Because we ain't God. Jesus truly faced temptation, but he didn't have a sinful nature. We have to be clear on this, that Jesus was actually tempted. Even without his sin nature, he was actually tempted. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. He didn't give in. And then he goes on to tell us exactly how we starve our old sin nature and how we, as a result, nourish our new nature in Christ. The very next verse in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4.16, the writer explains that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's not just talking about when you need a tank of gas. (laughs) That's a material need. He cares about it in certain situations. Other times he probably doesn't care if you have a tank of gas. But what he does care about is the time of need when we are facing temptation. That's the context. Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. Therefore, because he had no sin, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence in our time of need. Thank God we don't have to do it alone. If we can't save ourselves, we certainly can't sanctify ourselves. We can't make ourselves on our own initiative more holy. 
but we do have the joy and the honor of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, changing our affections, causing us to desire actions that reflect joyful obedience, joyful thanksgiving. And the most important way to do this is to fix our eyes on Christ and the promise of his glorious appearing. Back in our main text, John, 1 John 3, 2 and 3, he says, we're now children of God. It hasn't yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. Well, I'd like to draw our minds again to the story we began with, Andy retiring from the automotive factory. You see, you and I are Andy. We have a choice every day to live according to the desires of our flesh or to live according to God's law, God's design for our lives. And unfortunately, Andy lived according to his own desires. He lived according to his old nature in Adam, not his new nature in Christ. He didn't exhibit joyful thanksgiving through the week to his coworkers. He didn't nourish his new nature in Christ, and so his supposed professed new nature in Christ starved. And what was left, what was recognizable in Andy, was just an, an angry, selfish, short-tempered man. So Christian, I want to ask you today, do the people that you interact with on a daily basis know there's something different about you? If you were to tell them that you were a Christian, would they be shocked? Or would they say, yeah, that makes sense. He lives differently. She lives differently. Well, if that is the case, I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you become aware of the ways in which your walk contradicts what you profess, to help you walk like Jesus, to, to live a life of joyful thanksgiving, to nourish your new nature in Christ. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that we could get our ticket punched. It's not a one-and-done kind of thing. We don't just say, Thanks for doing that for me, Jesus. Yes, I accept, and then we live however we want. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. So if this is something the Holy Spirit has been convicting you of during our time together today, I want to ask you to take a moment right now in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal someone to you, a fellow believer that you can ask to check in with you to pray with you on a regular basis. James chapter 5, verse 16 tells us that, if we, that we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we may be healed. Continue in a moment of prayer and, and ask, am I living a life of joyful thanksgiving by using the gifts that God has given me? And if the answer is no, ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you can use those gifts. There's a place for you to use your gifts, brothers and sisters. And if you're here today and you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, but you've sensed throughout our time this morning a desire to do so, 
That's the Holy Spirit working in your heart. And I'd love to speak with you after our service today if that's you. I'm not gonna tell you Christianity makes life easy. I'm gonna tell you how hard discipleship is. And as much as I wanna see unbelievers come to faith in Christ, I'm not gonna soften the rough edges of the gospel to get a false profession. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our gracious heavenly Father, thank you that we can call you our Father. Thank you for adopting us. Help us to live according to our new nature. Help us to starve our old sin nature. We can't do it without you, Holy Spirit. Help us to be so filled up with your Spirit, God, that when we're tempted to sin, We don't walk, but we sprint to the throne of grace and plead with you for help in our time of need. Because as much as we want to be done with our old sinful lifestyle, you want that for us even more. And you actually have the ability to help us do that. We pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.